sovereignty of God over our salvation. As we work through Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 through 14, we see a God who does what He pleases, how He pleases, when He pleases. From eternity past, God chose, God willed, God decided, and God planned to save sinners. These verses in Ephesians chapter 1 bring us face to face with the absolute sovereignty of God. Our God is a sovereign God. In verse 3, Paul says, Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why was Paul writing this? Because he affirmed that God was entirely responsible for choosing us from the foundation of the world. That God was sovereign in predestinating us unto adoption. He predestinated us according to the kind intention of his will. And so Paul thanks God for this conversion and for our conversion. Paul praises God because God's sovereignty is the main reason behind our salvation. Then he turns to the Son in verse 7 and he says our redemption is through his blood. We have forgiveness of sins. And this is again rooted in the kind intention of God's will. Paul isn't done giving God all the glory due to his name. Because as you go from verses 4 through 14, as I mentioned last time, 202 words that Paul is piling one after another. He's so excited that he comes to verse 14. And what does he do in verse 14? He says, but for the praise of the glory of his grace. Today, we'll look at verses 11 and 12. Let me read that for you. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Verse 12. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. We'll see two truths today. Our salvation flows out of God's sovereignty. Verse 11. And our salvation is to the praise of God's glory. Verse 12. Let's begin to look at the truth. Our salvation flows out of God's sovereignty. Paul says in verse 11, In Him we have obtained an inheritance. We have an inheritance that belongs to Christ. The ground of our inheritance is in Christ. Christ is the source of our inheritance. Our salvation begins with being in Christ, in Him. And we see that phrase repeated through the book and especially in chapter 1. Look at verse 3. Blessed be the God of our Father, Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ. Verse 4, even as He chose us in Him, in Christ. Verse 7, it says, in Him we have redemption. Verse 9, it says, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth 
in Christ. In verse 10, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him. All the blessings of God centers on Him and what He did for us. Paul's point in verse 11 is that our inheritance is also in Him. When we become a Christian, we were nailed to the cross of Christ, we were buried with Christ, we were raised with Christ, we are one with Christ forever. We are in union with Christ Jesus. And that's what 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 23, you don't have to turn there, let me read this for you. You are Christ and Christ is God's. So essentially, Paul is saying, we dwell in God and God dwells in us. We are, in a sense, possessed by Christ and we possess Him. And everything that belongs to Christ is ours. As we read 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 17, it reads, He that is joined to the Lord is one spirit, meaning we become one with Christ. We lose our identity and we take on the identity of Jesus Christ. We become Christ-like. Now some Bible versions translate verse 11 as we were made an inheritance. Meaning we become God's inheritance. This could also be theologically true. We read in Psalm 100 verse 3 says, know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who made us. We are His. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. That means we are His inheritance. Deuteronomy chapter 7 verse 6 reads, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession out of all the people for on the face of the earth. So we are His inheritance. So in one sense, we are Christ's inheritance, but in another sense, we possess Christ's inheritance. Both of this can be true. I'm going to lean towards the translation that's here in the ESV, that we have obtained an inheritance, meaning we have gained an inheritance. So what's our inheritance? Well, the meaning of the word inheritance means the portion that one has gained or received. By lot. First Peter chapter 1 verse 4 reads to an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. These inheritances, as Peter expressed in First Peter, are heavenly inheritances. That is in contrast to earthly inheritance, will not fade away, will not perish or spoil. So when you and I become believers, yes, we do get some of the heavenly inheritance that belongs to Christ Jesus while we are still here on earth as we become a believer. For example, we get eternal life. We get love, joy, peace, the fruit of the Spirit. As we saw last week, we get wisdom and insight that is lavished upon us. The gifts of the Spirit, as we mentioned in Galatians chapter 5. We get strength, we get guidance. We get provision for our needs. We get forgiveness, as we saw in verse 7 of Ephesians chapter 1. We are forgiven for all our sins. We get righteousness. The righteousness that belongs to Christ Jesus is imputed to us. These are all inheritance that we receive while we're still here on earth. 
But there is an inheritance that will be fully manifested to us, fully revealed to us when Christ comes to earth at the return of Christ. And this is what Paul reminds in Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, where he says, But our citizenship is in heaven. From it we await our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform, he says, our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So yes, when Christ comes back, our heavenly inheritance will be completely ours. Because we are heirs, heirs of Christ. Now let's go through the rest of verse 11. Ephesians chapter 1. It says, in him we have obtained an inheritance. And then he says, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Now, through the rest of verse 11, in order to understand that, we need to have a clear understanding of the sovereignty of God. Understanding the sovereignty of God is essential and it will help us understand the rest of verse 11 and, and understand our salvation as well. Scripture is clear. That our God is a sovereign God. And we see that all through scriptures. Job in the Old Testament, Job chapter 37, verses 6 through 13. If you read there, it says that God is sovereign over everything, including the rain and the snow that fall. He says to the snow, fall on the earth. Likewise, he Tells the rain to pour out on the earth. He tells the bees to go into their den. And the bees go into their dens. He, he tells the ice to come. And the ice is coming upon the earth. The waters to freeze. The waters freeze. Verse 11 says, He loads the thick cloud with moisture. The cloud scatters its lightning. Now folks, listen to this. Verse 12, it says, They turn around and around by his guidance to accomplish all that God commands them on the face of the world. God is sovereign. What about Proverbs chapter 16, verse 33? It says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. On a personal level, Psalm 139 Verse 16 says, He ordained all the days of our lives before we were even born. God is sovereign. God is sovereign and He's also sovereign over our salvation. I want to take you through a couple of scripture references that will help us understand this. Would you please turn with me in your Bibles? And if you don't have one, just Try to take a peek into your neighbors. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 through 28. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 26 through 28. For consider your calling. Brothers, not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth, but God chose 
What is foolish in the world to shame the wise? God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. And by the way, why did God choose in 27? Why did God choose in in verse 28? Why did God choose? So that, in verse 29, no human being might boast in the presence of God. This is the answer to the age-old question, why did God choose? So that no man may boast in the presence of God. Paul continues in verse 30 of the same chapter. And he says, and because of him, because of whom? Because of God, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Again, he gives a reason why he chose us in Christ, why he was a reason for us being in Christ. And the reason is found in verse 31, so that... As it is written, let the one who bows, bows in the Lord. Salvation is all of God. So that we can never boast that we did it or that we were the cause of it. There is nothing we contributed to our salvation except our sin. And all that we did was sin wholesale. That's what we did. We read in 2 Corinthians, would you turn with me please to 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 4 reads, in their case the God of this world has blinded The minds of the unbelievers. That is why the gospel is strange to unbelievers. The unbelievers will not understand the truth of God's word. And we've seen that in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. That the natural man does not understand the things that belongs to God. So here Paul says, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. To keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Now listen, listen to this, verse 6. This is where I want you to focus. This is what I'm meant to. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. God is the one who has shown his light. The light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Paul is comparing comparing the creation story to our salvation. Just as God created the light and removed the darkness, in the same way God spoke and removed the darkness from our blind minds to give us the knowledge of the glory of Christ. It was God who did it. Would you please turn with me to Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. 
reads, But when he, that is God, who had set me, and that is Paul, as Paul was writing this letter to the Galatians, set me apart before I was born, and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal a son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with anyone. Paul is saying here, God is the one who set me apart before I was born, even before I was conceived. Paul is saying, I'm called by the grace of God. Paul is saying, God is the one who is sovereign and calling me to salvation. He chose me even before I was born and sovereignly intervened in my life was nothing that I did. All that Paul was doing was sinning against God. All that Paul was doing was walking. He was on the way to Damascus to get this letter so that he could get and persecute Christians. All that he did was sin wholesale. And as he was on the way to Damascus, God sovereignly intervened into Saul's life. Would you please turn with me to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. says, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Who is the one who initiated a good work? God. God who initiated a good work in you will do what? Will also bring it to completion. Would you scroll down to verse 29? Philippians chapter 1, verse 29. For it has been granted to you. That means it has been given to you. That for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Here we see faith is a gift of God. Faith has been granted to you so you might believe in God. Would you please turn with me to First Thessalonians? First Thessalonians chapter one, verse four. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you. And we read this that God is the one who did the calling. He chose us. And there are many more scriptures. And I want to take you to one more scripture. In fact, two more. Would you please turn back into the Gospels? No, before we go into the Gospel, let's turn to Acts, please. Acts chapter 13, verse 48. Acts chapter 13, verse 48. It says, And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And look at this, folks. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Believing the gospel is the direct effect of God's choosing. So when the gospel is proclaimed to the elect of God, they respond to the truth of the gospel and they believe in the gospel. John chapter 15 
verse 16, says, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. And that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. You see all these verses in the Bible emphasizing the sovereignty of God in our salvation. Now you may ask the question, why are we reorienting ourselves with these verses? Pastor, is this your hobby horse? No, my friend, it is not. The reason I take you to these verses is because we cannot have a right understanding of verse 11 unless we have a right understanding of God's sovereignty and His will. So let us come back to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. We read, In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined. Let's look at the phrase, having been predestined. The word predestined is from the Greek word, Proorizo. It's two words. Pro is a preposition, and orizo is the the word, which means horizon. We get our English word horizon. Horizon means boundary. As you look into the ocean on a boat and you look at the distance, you see the horizon, the boundary between the sky and the water. And when you put the preposition Pro, in front of the horizon, it means you are marking out a boundary beforehand. That's what it means. Believers are what they are because God has chosen to mark them out. God has put a boundary on man before man was even created. It was not by fate. It was not kismet. It was not Q, Sarah, Sarah, whatever will be, will be. The future is not ours to see. Nor was it merit or our brownie points that determines our destiny. God thought of you and thought of me in the counsel of his own will and marked us out even before we were born. He not only conceived of the plan of redemption, but he also saw us in that plan. We were always there in the mind and the heart of God. And I want you to see what Paul is trying to do here in verse 11. In order to do that, quickly glance through verse 7. It says, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. And now in verse 11, he says, In Him we have obtained an inheritance. How does all this come into play? How does one enter God's kingdom? And this is where Paul brings clarity to the manner in which we enter God's kingdom. We enter God's kingdom because he has already predestined us before the foundation of the world. Very few people give it a second thought. In fact, many preachers just gloss over these verses without even waiting to break down the terms to explain the meaning. And some would give a meaning that predestination means God foreseeing into the future how man would respond, and so chose man to get around the meaning of predestination. Why do we have this problem in our churches? Well, mainly because of the contention and the argument and the controversy associated with the teaching of predestination. 
We are not naturally going to believe this truth of the sovereignty of God or our salvation. Because it goes against the grain of who we are in our sinful self. In our sinful self, friends, we are autonomous people. In our sinful self, we love to be autonomous. We are anti-authoritarian. We don't want to be told what to do. We fight for our freedom. Children want freedom from their parents. Husbands want their freedom. They don't want to be told by their wives what to do. Wives want their freedom. They don't want their husbands telling them what to do. Employees want freedom. They don't want to be told what to do. So how can we stand in the truth of the scriptures, the truth of predestination in which we are told that God is sovereign over our salvation? It goes against the grain of who we are. As I told you, we do not bring anything to the table except our sins. We want to have ownership and we want to stake a claim over our ability to choose our own salvation. We are not willing to see what scriptures have to say about the cause of our salvation. We have a closed mind and this is what the Pharisees did as well. They had a hard time understanding this. Do you want to know where it says that? Would you please turn to John chapter 6. John Chapter 6. And look at 60, verse 60, all the way through 66. It says, when many of the disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Now listen to this, folks. Verse 63. It's the Spirit who gives what? Life. The flesh is of no help at all. So in other words, Jesus is saying, You know what? You have life because what? Spirit has given it to you, not your flesh. It was not of your will. It is the Spirit who gives life. Then he goes on to say, The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. And in parenthesis, at least that's how in my ESV it's written, For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe, and who it was who would betray him. And verse 65 says, And he said, This is why I told you, Okay? Jesus is clarifying this. He says, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. And look at 66. And after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Jesus, what did you do? You just drove your disciples away. Jesus was not saying that you cannot choose me. He is saying you will not choose me unless it is granted to you by my Father. Now Jesus did not say this for the first time. Do you want to look at the other verses that Jesus said that? Would you please look at 37 please. John chapter 6 verse 37. He says, all that the Father gives me 
will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So there is that aspect of Father giving and whoever the Father gives will, they will be the ones who will come to Christ. Look at verse 39. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but should raise it on the last day. Look at verse 44. It says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. The Pharisees hated Jesus for this. They wanted autonomy, but the Lord Jesus Christ wanted them to see that he was sovereign over their salvation. Even as I teach these things, these truths, I know that many believers will have a hard time understanding these passages. And as I said the first time I started this, I'm glad, I'm rejoicing that our salvation is not based on our understanding of these truths, is it? Our salvation is based on the fact that Jesus Christ died for us and you put your trust in Jesus Christ and you turn around from your sins, you repent of your sins and completely say, it's not by my flesh, it's by what you did on the cross that saves me. Yes, that's what our salvation is dependent on. But as you understand this, many believers have a hard time wrestling with these truths. Some would even say that God is unfair. Well, I want you to turn with me to another passage, please. Would you turn with me to Romans chapter 9? Romans chapter 9. And we are not going to be reading the entire passage, but I want to point out a few of the verses here. And I won't be doing justice if I don't read it, but I want to encourage you to go home and read the entire chapter. And we'll begin verse verse 9. It says, For this is what the promise said. About this time I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah has conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. Not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it does not depend on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And then he goes on to say in verse 18, So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me, why does he still find fault? Who can resist his will? Verse 20, but who are you, a man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the porter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and other for dishonorable use? We see the sovereignty of God over our salvation. God is God. And he's sovereign. Let's come back to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11 continues. Let me read the entire 
Verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according, this is what you're going to look at, according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. God works all things according to the purpose of him. Purpose indicates that God is the author. Every little thing in the universe is subject to the purpose and planning of God. There are no accidents in the program of God. All things happen within the counsel of God. No one has to suggest anything to God. No one has, God doesn't have to go to 10 people to get counsel. As Martin Lloyd-Jones writes, God thought with himself. He deliberated with himself and he meditated with himself. The whole plan of salvation from beginning to end, is of God and exclusively of God. Everything originates in God. Everything comes from God. This is God's grand design for all ages. And this is the most consoling and most comforting truth we can ever know. It's the basis of my assurance and it's the guarantee of my future. It is God who put me where I am. It is God who began a good work in me. It is God who even assures me and guarantees to me of its completion. I'm in the plan of God and nothing, may I repeat that, I'm in the plan of God and nothing can remove me from that plan. Paul says in verse 11, he says he works all things. Meaning all things, everything, our past, our present, our future, all our choices, all our present choices, all our future choices is according to the counsel of God's will. Everything is rooted in God's will. The emphasis on the will of God, not our will. Is that clear? Folks, our will is to do the will of Satan. Isn't this what Jesus said? Would you please turn with me? I know it's always good to turn back and look at scripture references. Um, I'm sorry I'm making you turn to all these passages, but, you know, that's the only way we can learn them by memorization. John chapter 8, verse 44. John eight forty-four. It says, You are of your father, the devil, And your will is to do your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. People have a hard time accepting that. They argue that, no, I am not. I have my own free will. I'm just a robot or I'm a puppet. That's not possible. Well, the term free will is such a misunderstood term today. Yes, we do have free will. We do have a free will to do anything and everything we want. We don't deny that. But our problem is not with the question of our free will. Our problem is, what is our will bound to? Our wills are bound to our minds. And the Bible says our minds are darkened in understanding. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 17. 
So although we have a will, our will is enslaved to our mind, and what our minds wants to do is far removed from any desire to see God. Our hearts are deceptive, and so our wills are enslaved to Satan. In fact, we don't even sometimes understand what it means to be fully depraved. We think it's spiritual death, yes, but you remember that depravity means it's not just spiritual death, it's death completely. It's affected every part and faculty of your beings. Your spirit, your soul, your body are a slave to sin and Satan. That's what Ephesians chapter 2 verse 2 says, we are children of disobedience. We are morally incapable or desiring or seeking after gods. Our minds do not desire gods. And because our minds do not desire gods, desire God, our will is bound to our mind and our will does not desire God. We are continually in a state of sin. Sin as enslaved man, corrupted man, blinded man, alienated man. And so the will of man is under the control and dominion of Satan. A.W. Pink, he writes, and I paraphrase this. He says, many evangelical pulpits teach that God has done his part by sending his son to die for us. And now we need to do our part, for it is in our power now whether or not we shall be saved. (laughs) It's like this. God has cast his vote, Satan has cast his vote, and now you have one vote. And God is sitting up in the heavens, wringing his hands, hoping that you would cast your vote for him. Is that the God of the Bible? The God of the Bible is a sovereign God. A God who is not dependent on man. I'm glad that our salvation rests on the eternal will of God rather than our will. For if it had rested on our will, folks, I would not be standing here this morning. I'm sure none of you would be seated here this morning if it was resting in your will. Isn't that what John chapter 1 verses 12 and 13 says? Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children, this is what I want you to listen. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of, speak to me, born of God. God's will is sovereignly independent of everything outside of himself. God does according to his own pleasure. He does not have to give an account to anyone. No one can prevent him from doing anything as he pleases. We do not have the right to demand that God express his will in any particular way. Our salvation centers on God's sovereignty. Amen. Right? Let's come to the application part. So what? So if our salvation centers on God's sovereignty, let me ask you a question. Are you living your lives as if God is sovereign? Are you? God is a sovereign God. Are you living your lives as a God is sovereign? How can you live your life resting in the sovereignty of God? And I want to read a quote from Charles Spurgeon. He said, There is no attribute more comforting to his children 
than that of God's sovereignty. Under the most adverse circumstances, in the most severe trials, and by the way, we will all go through trials. Not if we go through trials, when we go through trials. In the most severe trials, they believe that sovereignty has ordained their afflictions. That sovereignty overrules them and that sovereignty will sanctify them. There is nothing for which the children ought more earnestly to contend than the doctrine of their master over all creation, the kingship of God over all the works of his hands, the throne of God and his right to sit upon that throne. Charles Spurgeon continues. He says, the sovereignty of God is a sweet pillow that you can lay your head at night. It's a beautiful truth, not only that God is in control over all, but is also working everything out, the good and the bad, for your good and his glory. And he continues, he says, This sweet doctrine is medicine for the soul that you can take in any season of life. True? Resting in the sovereignty of God. The next time you get anxious and you can hear your heart murmur, you rest in the sovereignty of God. There is nothing that's outside of his control. Your salvation, the greatest miracle that happened, is in his control. He's the one who ordained it. Would he also not take care of every single detail of your life? You find your children not obeying you? You find your children going wavered? Rest in the sovereignty of God and pray to God because God is the one who is the author of salvation. You have a hard time with the relationship with people around you. Rest in the sovereignty of God and love them because only God can change their hearts. Let's come to the second truth. And the second truth is seen in our salvation is to the praise of his glory. Verse 12. Verse 12, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 12 reads, So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Let's get the phrase, we who were the first to hope in Christ. No, I'm sorry, we who were the first, yeah. This phrase has two ways of looking at it because I'm looking at the word we. Commentary, commentator after commentator has given different meanings for the word we. Who are the we? Is Paul referring to the Jews and the Gentiles? Or is he referring to himself and the Gentiles? Or is he referring to the people who came to Christ as opposed to the people in the church of Ephesus? Because he's writing this letter to the church of Ephesus. So he's saying, we who know Christ as compared to you who are knowing Christ, however that goes. We cannot be dogmatic here. We can take it either ways, though I would lean to the fact that Paul is using the we as in referring to the ones who first heard the gospel in contrast to the people of Ephesus. But what's more important here in this verse, more than trying to spend time on who the we is referring to, I think we need to look at the hope that we have in Christ. The reason we have hope in Christ is because Christ has done his work for us on the cross. 
while we were perishing and we were in agony and we were hopeless, without hope and without joy, and we were lost in this world, Christ, he who knew no sin, became sin for us, so that we might have the righteousness of Christ. Why were we yet sinners? Christ died for us. 1 John chapter 4 says, we love him because he first loved us. And this is why we have hope in Christ. And so Paul says, we who are the first to have hope in Christ. And then he continues into the next phrase. Might be to the praise of his glory. Salvation is all of God, is all for the glory of God and not about us. As the planets revolve around the sun. And everything revolves around the glory of God. God is a chief object of praise and the display of His grace. As the compass always points to the true magnetic north, understanding the truths of God's word should always point us to the glory of God. Now when we think of glory, we have intrinsic glory of God and the ascribed glory of God. Intrinsic glory is the sum truth of all his divine perfections, his attributes. That's what we do in our Sunday school class. When we start, we'll be looking at the attributes of God. We are looking at the intrinsic glory of God, a reflection of who God is, his greatness, his grandeur, being manifested to sinners, especially in the salvation of man from sins. That's the intrinsic glory. God's ascribed glory is when we ascribe or express praise to God. So we understand the intrinsic glory of God. Now we ascribe glory to God. That's what happens in a worship service. As we sing about His, His majesty, His greatness, His grandeur. And we listen to the word of God. And as the word of God is proclaimed. And as the glory of God is proclaimed. Now we ascribe glory to God. That's what Paul said in Romans chapter 11 verse 36. For from Him... And through him and to him are all things. And then he says, to him be the glory forever and ever. A commentator Montgomery Boyce writes, Having a high view of God means something more than giving glory to God. It means giving glory to God alone. Isaiah chapter 48, verse 11 writes, reads, For my own sake... For my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. This should be the center of everything we do. The apex of our teaching, our beliefs, our worship, our lives. Everything we do should be to promote God's glory, to behold God's glory, to adore God's glory, to esteem God's glory. All glory and praise go to God and to God alone. If God doesn't get the glory, something's missing. If we teach a system in which salvation is partly of God and partly of man, who gets the glory? God and man. But if we say salvation is all of God, then the glory is not shared by anyone. Our salvation is to be the praise of His glory. It's to be always to the praise of His glory. In application, are you bringing glory to God? Are you glorifying Him in what you say? Are you glorifying Him in how you live your lives? 
is your view of God, a high view of God in which not that you give glory to God, but that God alone gets all the glory. How does this play out in your life? Are we living for your own glory? For someone to pat you on the back? Someone to recognize you and you feel pumped up? Are you living for appreciation? Are you living for affirmation? Is your identity found in other people's affirmation of you? Is your identity found? Is your joy found in how people affirm you or respect you? Or are you living for the glory of God? 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20 reads, We were brought with a price, so glorify God in your body, in your spirit. Are you glorifying God with your mind? Are you sitting here with a clean mind? A mind that's filled with the word of God? Are you feeding on God's word? Are you sitting here with a clean heart? Or are you bitter towards someone? Matthew chapter 5 says, If you are offering a gift at the altar, and they remember that your brother has something against you, it says, leave there, leave your gift there before the altar. Go first be reconciled to your brother, and then come offer your gift. Folks, if you're sitting here to worship God, and your heart is filled with bitterness, God is not glorified. God is not glorified. Go home, fall on your knees, and cry out to God. Repent of that and give God all the glory. Confess your sins and give God all the glory. Are you having the mind of Christ? You can only have the mind of Christ with the Word of God. If you're not feeding yourselves with the Word of God, you do not have the mind of Christ. You have the mind of the world the wisdom of this world, and the wisdom of this world is contrary to the mind of Christ. Dear friends, I pray that you would rest in the sovereignty of God. I pray that you would give all glory to God. Father, we thank you for this day, and I thank you for the word that you've given us that we can relish, we can cherish, we can chew on it, we can take it home, we can meditate on it. Thank you for your word that brings conviction. And I pray that we would remain rested in your word, Lord. Not in our ability, not in our intellect, not in our skills, but in the fact of the pure word of God, which simply tells us to trust what it says, that you're the author of salvation, you're a sovereign God. And as a result, we want to give you all glory and honor that belongs to you, as Paul said in Romans chapter 11. We thank you for this day, and you be honored and glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.